Hello and welcome to the World of Mouth podcast, where we share the stories of the world's best chefs, restaurateurs and other experts, and their favorite destinations to travel and eat. My name is Kent Nars and I'm the creative director of World of Mouth, a platform that connects more than 600 restaurant experts who share their favorite restaurants, from the best place for a pizza slice, a taco or a hamburger, to the latest must-visit new fine dining restaurant opening. Today we're meeting cocktail bartender Ryan Chetiawardana, aka Mr. Lion, in London. He's the owner of cocktail bars Super Lion, Dandelion, Cub, Lioness, Silver Lion and Seed Library. He grew up in a family where food and drink were the heart of the household. To develop his passion for food, he began his career training as a chef, but missed the personal interaction with customers. We will hear Ryan Chetiawardana tell about opening his first bar, White Lion, in London in 2013, as the first cocktail bar in the world to use no perishables like fruit and ice, and how this led him to the center stage of the cocktail world. At the end of the podcast, he will reveal his favorite cocktail bars and restaurants in London, Australia, New York and Japan. You'll also find these places in the World of Mouth app. Tell me, who is Ryan Chetiawardana? <laughs> Uh, well, so I'm a bartender that's been working in the food and drink world for, for over 20 years now. Um, and I think like most people who have been involved in the industry, I've come to it in a slightly kind of circuitous way. And I actually started in kitchens before I was in bars. So I started to train as a chef and I, I did that really because, you know, I grew up with food at the, the kind of center of the household. My mum was an amazing cook. She taught us not only how to cook, so we were cooking for a very, very young age, but the idea that food was a, a a social mechanism, a way to bring people together, and it was a way to kind of connect with community. So I always loved kind of being involved in the kind of food world and was always very interested in it. We, we all were very kind of adventurous and, and kind of curious about food from a young age. Um, so I originally kind of went into the world of food just to, to kind of learn some practical sides of it, because it had been something that had been part of a passion for so long and, you know, ended up kind of working and training in a kitchen but I quickly found that I I missed the interactions. That's the thing that I loved around kind of working with food. So actually, my, my oldest friend at the time quite flippantly said, well, if you still want to work with ingredients, you want to be able to, to look at the provenance behind things and, and do all of these things, but you want to speak to people, just go work in a bar. And, you know, I think it was a joke from his side, but it was almost a light bulb moment for me. Um, so I, I went and spoke with a couple of bars I, I talked about what interested me and why I loved that world and, and they took a chance on it. But it was really, again, still, you know, a passion at that young age. Um, and then while I was studying, I just kind of I, I remained working in bars. And as I started to look at ways in which I could take my studies in, in arts and sciences and, and find an output for it, I, I, you know, I quickly found that the bar that was my passion really became the, the, the kind of real key focus of all of that. So I then kind of put all energies into the kind of drink side of things and work through as many different styles of place as I could. Um, and then have just been kind of carrying on as that as the, the kind of singular focus ever since I graduated. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's really become as diverse a, a project as, as, as I would want it to be. You know, we work with lots of different industries. We work with different creators, different, um, I, I, I suppose, approaches to way that you could look at food. Um, but we do it in a very, very wide sense. So we have our four bars. So we have Seed Library and Lioness in London, Super Lion in Amsterdam, Silver Lion in Washington, D.C. We have Miss Lion Studio where it works with any of the different partners, be it from fashion to food to, to music to tech. 
Um, and then we have our bits that try to interact in a slightly different way with things like the Masterclass series and the books and any of the other little bits of media that we do that try to kind of really highlight the diversity of the wonderful world of food. Uh, if we go to, to, to where it all started, uh, as you mentioned, in your childhood, um, was that, did you grow up in what part of the UK? Was that in London, uh, the London area or where? No, it was in Birmingham. So second biggest city in the UK. Um, and it was a very, very diverse city. Um, and that's really where I suppose my curiosity got kind of channeled in amongst food as well. And then if we uh, uh, if we go fast forward to to your uh, bars, you mentioned a bit about them. But uh, the Mr. Lion, uh, the, 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 the legend around you, as as people, many people would say in the industry, where i mean when did the the big breakthrough with uh, you in the cocktail bars when when did you would you say that happened it was probably when i was working up a, a bar called bramble in in edinburgh and that was the place where i think a lot of kind of my vision of the industry kind of crystallized i'm working in kind of like a ton of different venues everything from kind of fine dining through to hotels and nightclubs even And everything that I started to encounter had different ways of approaching hospitality, but they all felt like they were quite themed in a certain manner. There was a way that you worked within that set venues, uh, that venue. And the thing about Bramble was it just really put the idea of hosting people at the heart. Yes, of course, it had to be great cocktails. It had to be delicious. It had to be interesting. It was great music. It was a very cool space. But ultimately, it was about trying to think uh, about the guests in a particular way. And that that really was to me the, the the kind of the point at which things shifted, and it was really where I managed to to kind of get my focus in my style of bartending, the way that I wanted to explore the industry, and I suppose it was where I started to get a little bit more attention. I won uh, UK Bartender of the Year for the first time when I was in uh, Edinburgh, and that allowed me to kind of travel around the country and I suppose talk about what we do in in different kind of circumstances, different audiences, but it allowed me to learn so much. You know, I, I, I managed to get very different perspectives. I was surrounded by some brilliant mentors. And I think that to me was where, you know, it really excited me, the idea of remaining in this industry forever. And, you know, I remember my sister was living in in New York at the time and we started talking about, you know, the cocktail bars, you know, was there scope to do something different? Because, Aside from Bramble, it felt like a lot of things fell in a very similar vein. And, you know, we got excited by the idea of going, well, maybe we can do something that sits adjacent to all of these classical cocktail bars and actually could feel like it catered to a different audience or, or kind of recruited different people who weren't already interested in cocktails into the world of, of, of what mixed drinks could look like. And and that was the point where it really started to kind of blossom. You know, those those initial conversations that Natasha and I had and Natasha's best friend, who I call my other sister, Karen, we, we first started talking about, you know, we, we both had the same, we all had the same sentiments of going, well, it's lovely to be able to go out and have these drinks, but they were very similar in their style. They, the, the decor of them was the same, the music, the cocktails you get served. Um, so we set out this plan to, to, to really, you know, start to see whether we could do something that felt different along that. And, you know, I moved to London. I, I kind of worked in the lab side of 69 Colbrook Row. And then I was very fortunate to work for the kind of fluid movement group that had Whistling Shop, well, helped open and kind of build Whistling Shop. But they gave me real kind of license to kind of push my creativity in a very different way. Um, and that was the point where 
it started to become much more of a signature style, a way of approaching the language that we use, the approach from the bar, the way that we would set up the, the kind of mise en place became very kind of ingrained during that kind of process. Um, and that was where we then kind of really kind of bandied together as, as kind of a family to, to kind of set out and start the lion side of things, uh, which took a bit of time, you know, finding the right kind of venue, getting it off the ground. So initially when we started the project about in 2011, it was only until 2013 that we managed to kind of launch and, and get the bar kind of going. Um, and then the last 10 decades have been focused on the Lion projects and, and exploring as much as we could under kind of I suppose that, that style and that brand that we had created there. If you would have to explain the style of your bars for someone who is not into cocktails in, in two or three sentences, how would you, how would you describe it? I mean, to me, our bars are, are very fun and they're very human. That to me was, was crucial. It was all about the people at heart. So they're fun, they're human, and they're very accessible. Um, we always wanted them to be as democratic as possible, but they're also weird. <laughs> and I, I mean that in a positive sense, because we always wanted to kind of push people beyond their comfort zone and show how deliciousness, a big part of that is, is something new to discover. So I would say they're fun, they're accessible, um, and they're human but they're also exciting, uh, different and weird. <laughs> okay, okay. If we look back at the cocktail culture and the history of cocktails, which obviously is quite, you're quite familiar with. Um, mm -hmm. If we talk about 70s, 80s, uh, uh, and then coming into the last 20 years, I mean, which... Uh, which big uh, changes and uh, what, what's, what has there been in the evolution of the cocktail culture recently? I mean, there was, for such an ancient industry, it was, it was a little frustrating that there wasn't a lot of innovation for a while. Um, you know, there was a, certainly some periods where, you know, the revival of the classic cocktail and, and there was some key players who, who kind of really brought that back into the world and, You know, then there was the focus on on using great ingredients, and that was really important. And you know, from from Sasha Petrasky and and the work that he did in in kind of New York to to kind of really get people to care about the details. You know, there, there was a huge kind of like sea change that happened as a result of, of of that kind of movement, and it went from the kind of disco, very florid, sweet, not very nuanced, complex drinks, or, or not very complex drinks of the the, the kind of nineties. Um, into a, an era of, of, of real craft and care. But I think what was really exciting to then see, <clears throat> excuse me, was the, the the real boom that came after that time. So in the last, you know, 10 years or so, where there's been much more of a, a shift in the styles of bar, the people that are working within it, the type of ingredients that we have access to, the the, the, the kind of the kitchen and the bar coming much closer together and people realizing you know, food and drink are the same thing and just depend on how you want to manifest it. And that's created this incredible wave of, of kind of innovation that is, you know, it, it, it's it's catapulted things. So even though it needed that sequence of things that happened, you know, through the, the 70s, through to the 2000s, the last 10 years have, have really seen a massive change in, in, in kind of the work that is happening within within the bar world. Then, I mean, for you, for many, many people who 
hadn't heard of you. Uh, the uh, a few years ago, you uh, became part of the masterclass uh, series um, mm -hmm. in the streaming service, and uh, then you were there with uh, other experts like Bill Clinton and uh, and famous tennis players and uh, the world's best chess players, and so uh, representing the cocktail culture. Uh, what did this uh, uh, this uh, masterclass thing mean to you? I mean, obviously, it's it's a huge honor because, as you highlight, the you know the experts that are on on the platform are you know it, it's a real incredible roster of people that are, are really at the top of their game. So to be able to, and even looking at the culinary sector, there was you know people that are really had been very inspirational to me in my career, um, but also have have kind of really changed a lot of the the kind of landscape within the food world. So to be able to to kind of offer you know drinks alongside that, not only was it wonderful from kind of personal perspective it was it was really exciting to see cocktails be i suppose represented in that same class of things you know alongside as you say you know fine arts like you know some some very kind of important things within culture through to you know the the culinary side for it to sit within that same bracket was was very important for me and you know i think the thing that was exciting was it was it was something that people requested, which is really exciting. You know, the, the fact that people were very keen to be able to understand more about the craft of the cocktail. They were making, you know, they, they were following these kind of cook's recipes at home. Why wouldn't they then take the next step and start being able to make these drinks at home? They were going out to bars, they were trying them. You know, cocktail culture had been, I suppose, part of the, the, the kind of home setting in the US. But, you know, for it to really start to become much more ubiquitous and mainstream in, in kind of a global sense... And to see people get really excited by exploring the world of ingredients that are around them and, and looking to that social aspect of what a cocktail can do. Um, and that to me was kind of wonderful. But, you know, seeing the response to it was was incredible. Not only did we have the opportunity to teach people about their palates, about how they can take ownership of of kind of crafting these types of cocktails and, you know, what does it look like from a, you know, similar to their culinary journey um, with what they've been doing with their cooking, but it was more about the the social aspect. What does it mean to to look after somebody? What does it mean to be able to kind of think about creating something for the people that are in front of you or the your loved ones that surround you? And hearing the feedback from people about not only did it give them more confidence and they could go out to a bar and feel much more excited about trying something new, they said the moments of connection they had with those that surround them just ended up being that much stronger. And that and that to me was always the kind of true heart of what hospitality is and the reason why we create from a kind of food and drink perspective. But to to kind of hear people go, well, you know, I tried all these things or I gifted this to kind of my friend. These were my local spirits that I started to use and we ended up kind of doing these tastings and you just saw these incredible stories of of kind of wonderful human social interaction that that made me feel incredibly proud. Um, and, you know, we still continue to get lovely notes that come through about, you know, people saying that they hosted a dinner party and, you know, as a result of some of these drinks, they, you know, had one of their favorite nights out and, you know, they're, they're at now much more excited about being able to explore new things and they, they feel much more confident in creating. And, and that's to me is, is, is one of the most wonderful things about, you know, an educational platform like that. So I'm, I'm hugely proud of, of what we were able to do with the, the masterclass series. Well, yeah. Uh, if you would have to boil down, I mean, the, the basic principles, the few rules for someone who uh, knows nothing about cocktails, um, 
if you give would give a one minute masterclass, what's uh, uh-huh. what's the most important for someone at home who uh, thinks that hey, I I will make a great cocktail one day. So the key is is balance, and the balance needs to be in a wide sense. So I think from a from a taste perspective, people often don't think about the role of ice, and it's it's an ingredient that often gets kind of scrimped on or, or missed out. And it's the same thing as, you know, needing kind of heat to be able to kind of transform ingredients in your cooking. It's as crucial and you need to be able to control it and think about it in that same way. Of course, there's ways around it as there is in your cooking, but it's really the key element to be able to to kind of control and balance your drinks because dilution and temperature are the things that allow you to create that harmony. So one of the things I always say to people is, 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 get way more ice than you think you're going to need. Um, there are ways around it, but it gets much more complicated and the ice is a, is a brilliant mechanism for getting it right. The other point is, is think on what the occasion is. So, so often people will go, well, my favorite drinks are margarita, so I'm just going to make a margarita. Rather than thinking about who they're making it for, what the setting, what is the occasion? And in the same way that you're, if it's a blazing hot day outside, you're not going to make a roast dinner. You need to think in a similar way on your drinks. Of course, They can contrast the mood and transport you. Miserable day out, there's nothing like having a tropical drink to make you feel like you're on, you know, a desert island. But the emotion of that needs to be thought out. So think about what you want to create and why. And that will guide the the, the kind of choices you make on the style of drink, the ingredients you use. And obviously play to the things that you know you love. If you've got a particular favorite spirit, that's a great starting point. You know, you're going to have it already in the house. You don't need to go buy lots of different things. So... Think on the context and think on what you want to create and why before you get into the drinks and it'll be so much stronger as a result of it. Uh, there's still people saying that, I mean, obviously a lot of, there's a lot of great other beverages, beers and ciders and, and wines and, and sparkling wines and so. Uh, and for those people who say that, no, no, this is my thing. I do not drink cocktails because they are so strong. I don't like them. I don't drink liquor. Uh, what's your... What's your answer, your comment to these people? So my, I, I have a very wide definition of a cocktail. So a lot of people wouldn't even class a gin and tonic as a cocktail. It is to me. But I even would go, you know, if you serve a glass of wine at the right temperature in the right glass that suits that mood, that's a cocktail. Because a cocktail is about thinking about joining up all of the elements. It doesn't need to be lots of ingredients thrown together. It doesn't need to be a strong drink. It doesn't need to be a sweet drink. It's really about the care. That's what the cocktail is. And it's about the exactly that point I made about the emotion of what you want to create. If you serve a, a wine in a, a different shape glass, if you change the temperature of it, if you aerate it, all of these things drastically change not only the flavor profile, but how you interact with it. And that to me is what a cocktail is. So there's a cocktail that suits every single palate every occasion, every mood, because it's all about those choices you make to pay attention to those little details. So everybody will love a cocktail. And again, I'm obviously biased, but I think cocktails have this power because you're controlling all these elements. You can contrast or you can boost or you can, um, you know, really excite a mood better than any other food stuff. So of course, you know, you might have that piece of nostalgia around a certain dish or any of those things, but If you need to feel like you're, you know, you've had a really dreary day and you you do want to feel kind of like uplifted and bright and, you know, of course there's certain dishes that you'll go to, but they'll usually be comforting. The ability a cocktail has is to be able to just 
absolutely flip the mood. And, you know, that to me is, is, is a really powerful thing, but it's something that everybody should enjoy. So I think the idea that, you know, cocktails aren't for somebody is, is just because they haven't been kind of guided or looked after in the right way to find the right cocktail that suits their mood. Uh, then if we talk about London, uh, the cocktail scene in your, your hometown in London, what's, how would you, yeah. I mean, currently, how would you describe it? What's, what's going on? What is, uh, what is there and what is missing? So I think, you know, London, I'm obviously going to upset some people by this, but it's, you know, it remains the, the kind of greatest food and drink city in, in the world. And that is to me because of its, its diversity. And there's so much interest going on. There's people creating wonderful things. And there's been a lot of excitement about supporting that from the public, from the media, in a way that, um, you know, has kept the, the scene very exciting. But I do have, um, you know, I, I have some worries about the, the kind of longevity of that because it's a very different climate in the city at the moment. You know, there's there's a lot of things that are very, very difficult here. Um, and we're still reaping the, the the kind of consequences of Brexit. So whether that will continue is is actually a question mark to me. But at the moment, it still feels like it's got this incredible excitement around the scene and the you know the quality of the venues. And it's partly not just down to the the diversity of people that coming through and putting their mark on different kind of perspectives and cultures. It's it's down into the the way that they approach hospitality. It's meant that everything has taken the best from different parts of the world. You know, there was a big influx from, from Europe, particularly kind of, you know, Italian bartenders who who brought a very kind of like wonderful warmth and excellence of hospitality. You also had, you know, bartenders from Australia, from the US coming in, or, you know, Ireland or Scotland that have a very kind of gregarious, very kind of like bubbly style of, of kind of approach. And, and that's influenced the scene alongside obviously the historic um you know pub culture you have kind of a very very kind of traditional fine dining aspect of it so it's ended up creating this wonderful balance of service that is very unique anywhere in the world and that to me remains kind of why you know that gets reflected in so many different styles of of, of kind of cafe pub restaurant bar um that it remains this incredibly exciting scene In the next part of the podcast, Ryan Chetiawardana will reveal his favorite cocktail bars and restaurants in London, Australia, New York, and Japan. What about if we talk about restaurants and bars, uh, if we go to, into some, some names and places? Um, yeah. I mean, if we start with London, which uh, if you start with, with a drink, with a cocktail bar, Uh, or any place to have have a great beverage. Uh, where would you send me if I would come to to London now? Well, there's except, a few except, things I think except, you have to hit off. Except your own places, of course. <laughs> oh no, of course, yeah. Um, there's there's a couple of things that I think are are crucial. You you have to go to a pub. It's it's really like a, a key thing to be able to go do because it's it's inherent in the culture. And I think other places have a similar. You know, you you have taverns. You have. Um, you know, aperitivo bars, you have wonderful little bistros that that bring that same sense of, um, I suppose, accessibility to them. But there's something about a pub that has a very unique charm. And I think it's like linked to the way that the kind of Brits drink, but it's it's just something that's that's very special. And I think, you know, you travel to, to, to Ireland, to Scotland, they have some incredible versions of pubs, but 
an East End London pub still remains kind of like a, a very kind of warm place in my heart. And, you know, one of my favourites is is The Marksman. And it's a pub that, um, you know, has excellent food. You know, it's really worth going to just for that. You know, um, you know Tom and John, when they, they kind of set out to do it, they kind of retained, you know, their, their pedigree as chefs. And, you know, they, they, they do some really, really wonderful cooking. But they also preserved it as a pub and something that was really anchored in that community. And the, you know, the fact that you can go up to the bar, you can get a whiskey and a Guinness, and you kind of sit in this kind of bustling environment. You've got people eating, you've got people who've, you know, just finished a football match who are there, you've got locals who've been coming there for, for 30 years, and it just feels so reflective of the community that, you know, if I'm send, if somebody's from out of town, I'm like, we, we have to go and experience this. And there's a really beautiful, perfect moment. To me, it's the order of a, you know, a Guinness, a whiskey, and they do these kind of barley buns that are a little bit of a nod to, to kind of the boys like Soho past where they, you know, got to be surrounded by some of the bits of Chinatown, but they've married it with, you know, beef and barley and horseradish. And it's, it's a perfect little dish. And that is a little bar snack alongside some drinks is, is, is kind of really wonderful to me. Wow. Um, next up, I think it's, you know, you, you have to visit, the cocktail bars are very diverse. You've got things like very like kind of wonderful, small independent bars, but the, the the kind of grander hotels are also incredibly special. And I think London does it better than anywhere else. And, yeah. you know, you can go very traditional. I, I, I love Dukes and being able to go and have a martini there is is kind of magical. It's like you're in, in a time warp. Um, the American bar at the Savoy obviously remains kind of like one of the most iconic bars in the world. But I think just for the way that they bring the hospitality to life in the space. I think the Connor is, is, is kind of a very, very important bar to, to go and visit. And, you know, of course they do classical drinks. They do some very inventive style drinks, but it's just the, the atmosphere of being in the bar is, it's kind of second to none. It's a, it's a very, very special place. You, you feel distinctly like you're in London, but you're, you kind of whisked away in this kind of like magical moment where, you know, you, regardless of who you are, you made to feel like you're a, you're a million bucks. And I think that's a, a a lovely thing to be able to experience. Um, would, you, would you go for a in 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 uh, the Connaught? Would you go for a classic or something like more experimental or what? I mean, go into such a place. What would you go for? Oh, you 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 kind of have to dip into both sides. You know, the the martini is very very iconic there, and you know I think it is something that is an experience. You know, it's very much an engagement. They talk you through it. You get to try different aspects of it. And the beautiful thing about a martini is it's endlessly customizable um but they they do it with their own flair and they they have their own little accents that allow you to, to kind of personalize it and i think that's a a lovely way of, of being able to share a moment with somebody um i always talk about the fact that you know sharing a martini with somebody ahead of dinner is one of life's perfect moments it's just this moment of pause and you know the nice thing about going to somewhere like the Connaught for that, even though it's a slightly more grand affair because it's it's drawn out, it's very theatrical. There's something about that kind of intimacy where you're you're with somebody there and you get to talk through this, especially if somebody's new to kind of that as an experience. It just becomes this you know wonderful point of engagement, and it still feels like there's the bustle of the world going around you, but it's your little um, kind of bubble for that kind of like period while they're making you the martini. So. I would definitely order the martini, um, but they continue to do some, you know, very inventive things on the cocktail menu. And of course, going into a place and buying into 
their their expertise their what they want to display as a product is always a wonderful thing to do so classic and off their menu i think okay. is, is the play yeah. <laughs> um and then finally if i was to look at trifecta i'd go somewhere like dram which is a relatively new bar that has a couple of different spaces and again it you know it, it celebrates one of my favorite spirits in the world which is whiskey um but they do it in a very modern sense so you have kind of a little bar at the front where you can you can order some great whiskies they have cocktails on draft that are excellent and so you can kind of you know talk with the team it doesn't feel stuffy it doesn't feel classical in a whiskey sense but they really care about the spirit and they're displaying it in cocktails they're serving it neat um and there's a little pool table upstairs there's a, a kind of more dedicated cocktail bar in the back and it's a lovely place to be able to you know be in the center of london you know it's on denmark street you know very historic um kind of site to be on but you you get to just kind of feel like you're you're in the real bustling heart of london okay great great uh and then for some food after the the cocktail what would you uh, any favorites oh there's there's so many favorites i mean i love some of the um i suppose this is great new wave of, of restaurants that are celebrating different cultures and different perspectives but they're really marrying it through a, a british lens So you have kind of uh, Santi Acol doing this with with kind of British ingredients through a Mexican lens. You have the the kind of Super 8 team doing, you know, Kiln and Smoking Goat are doing it with kind of uh, like Northern Thai, but with, again, focus on British ingredients. But one of my favorites for it is is BB. Um, so Chet Sharma's restaurant in Mayfair, Indian food, but, you know, his pedigree and his his technical understanding, you know, It's, I think it's hard to find a chef with a with a kind of more impressive CV than he has. Um, but it's <clears throat> it doesn't feel stuffy in the execution. It's very playful. It's got a great soundtrack. You know, everything feels so vibrant. And, you know, this is coming from somebody who's not great with spicy food. I still feel so excited when I go there. And it's, um, yeah, it's it, it's a wonderful uh, kind of restaurant doing some hugely inventive things. So I would say BB is, is, is of that set is probably... one of my favorites to go to. Um, I think all of the, the, the kind of St. John kind of lineage and the, the, the pedigree and the, the, I suppose the influence that has come from that restaurant remains incredible. And, you know, there's a lot of people, you know, James at Lyles is, is doing incredible work and it's, again, it's a, it's an offshoot that still feels part of the family. Um, but I think Lee at Black Axe Mangal, you know, I think it's, it's a marriage of his history with the restaurant brought into a very very different uh surrounding it's you know it's a, it's a heavy metal kebab shop i suppose is the way of describing it it's not subtle it's um it's loud all of the flavors are loud but it is so well executed i think a lot of people would have expected that to be brash but actually it's a demonstration of going well things can feel vibrant and, and loud but they can still be balanced and considered and and done with excellence And I think, you know, Black Axe continues to do that. As they've evolved, you know, they continue to do such inventive things. It's playful. It's really fun. Um, it's one of my favorite nights out to kind of go with with, with some friends. Uh, so I'd say Black Axe is, is a must. Um, and then Silo. Um, not only because I think it's an incredibly important restaurant in kind of a global sense. You know, the work that Doug is doing on... Um, you know, pushing the idea of, of zero waste without compromise, without kind of going, well, this is still about excellence. But I think the, the thing that always excites me about it is 
is how brilliant the cooking is. And each time you go, there's an inventiveness, there's a layering of flavour, there's a consideration for, you know, yes, the, the, the kind of purpose is to not have a bin and to, to demonstrate that, you know, sustainability doesn't need to sacrifice deliciousness. But it's the, the fact that it's, it's coming out with such confident hits in the dishes. You know, they are, they're paired back. He, he has an ability to, to kind of understand the, you know, how much complexity you can get from just really understanding the ingredients and combining them with real, real love and care. Um, so it's, it, it's, it's a must if you're visiting London. Um, anything, um, anything else in London or, or something elsewhere? I mean, there's, there's loads in London. I do think the, you know, the, the, the fine dining side is getting really exciting. You know, you're, you're seeing, um, you know, what Jeremy and co are doing at Koi is, is kind of like really wonderful where it's, again, it's demonstrating that that fine dining side doesn't need to, to kind of fall into the traditional vein. And that is not to take away from that. And I think some of the things that are going on in, you know, the, the typically celebrated kind of French and, and kind of Italian cuisines is, is hugely deserved because it's, it's wonderful cooking that's going on. But seeing kind of some of these other ingredients, these other flavors start to get, you know, that same care and attention, but, you know, you're getting a very different stem of, of dishes coming out of it. You know, it's not falling into the same formulae. And I think that's, that's always very exciting to me is, is again, it's that idea of it's, it's new and that, that feels very exciting and automatically starts to, to kind of shape the deliciousness of it in a different way. Um, so I, again, very, very worth seeking out. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Uh, any, any places in Birmingham still do you go there, uh, ever or, or some, some place there? I am so excited to get back to Birmingham. There's a couple of, I really want to go see what Brad Carter uh, is doing. because I think, you know, he's, I've, I've been able to try his food in other contexts, but I've never tried it in, you know, his eponymous restaurant in Birmingham. So I need to get back to that. The last time I was in, it was a very flying trip and I managed to get round to, you know, Birmingham has incredible Indian food. Um, it's always had like a, a great diversity in, in terms of its, its kind of population that's obviously reflected in the food. But to me, the nostalgia was actually going for, for, for Chinese food back in, in Birmingham. And the last time I was in, managed to go for dim sum, which was something I used to do both as family and with kind of friends and kind of being able to go out with some friends and, and, and kind of catch up and have dim sum there. Um, and I was hugely impressed by, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of scene that was going on. Um, there was a load of new restaurants that uh, I was excited to try, but, you know, it's definitely something I need to go back and explore more because I haven't been back for so long. Any other places uh, you just came back from from some travels, uh, something uh, in the the Americas or Asia or elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very fortunate that I I do get to travel a lot, and you know, there's both bars and restaurants that kind of remain a favorite. I was I was talking with some friends recently about other cities that challenge kind of like you know my my claim about London being the the kind of hotbed of things and. You know, I, I travel a lot to um, Australia. There's some very, very good friends out there, people that were, um, you know, old colleagues of ours. And a lot of my family are in Australia. So, you know, I think Sydney and Melbourne still reigns very, very strong. Um, you know, highlighting some bars there. I think, you know, Caretaker's Cottage in, in Melbourne, um, cocktail focused rather than being kind of a food venue, but absolutely 
one of the most exciting bars in the world. Um, Sydney, I think, has some of the most beautiful venues around. And I think everything from the Swill House group, you know, those those core bars of, um, you know, just opened Caterpillar Club, but Baxter Inn, Shady Pines, they've, again, like St. John, they've spurred this incredible diversity of venues and offshoots of, of some of their alumni and, you know, Cantina OK, um, you know, Earl's Duke joined. But actually the one I'd highlight is Double Juice, uh, which is Charlie's Bar in Sydney that I think, again, it feels very, very playful. But the, the execution of the cocktails is, is excellent. Um, so it's definitely one to, to kind of seek out. Um, obviously, Tokyo remains probably my favorite city to, to kind of visit in the world. Um, incredible restaurants and, and kind of bar scene going on. Um, I think there's been a new wave of, I think whenever I go back, Bar High Five remains the, the bar that I will kind of, I must see, you know, there's some great ones to, to kind of be able to seek out again, traditional all all the way through to some more modern ones. But I think Bar High Five, Bar High Five hits the right balance of both of those sides. It's got all of the, the kind of beautiful attention to detail Japanese bartending that, comes from, you know, Oeno Sun trained under Kishi at uh, Star Bar and, you know, has that excellence. But he's traveled the world. He's, you know, lived in the US. He's got, you know, elements of this kind of worldly perspective like that get married into that Japanese technique that I think is, is just makes it very, very special. Um, and then, yes, of course, like, you know, just coming back from the States, New York is, remains the other, like, very, very exciting scene. And I think there's, a huge amount of development going on there at the moment, actually. I think I talk about there being a bit of a pendulum swing between London and New York, and when one's booming, the other is, you know, maybe mm-hmm. plateauing a little bit. And it really feels like New York is is kind of in an incredible stride at the moment. There's some great new bars that are opening up. Uh, made it to Double Chicken, Please, and, and, and Martinis. Um, but actually, one of the newer ones that I hit, that's actually has a, a kind of Tokyo counterpart is, is Sip and Guzzle, which is uh, Shingo's Bar in, um, I want to say the East Village. My geography is pretty terrible on yeah. where it is in the city. Um, but he, uh, you know, is is doing his attention to cocktails in the basement and they are superlative. Really, really beautiful. Such care and attention. Delicate balance. There's a kind of more of an American bar on the top doing kind of American classics. And then he has an incredibly inventive food menu. Mike Bagal has taken over the the kind of food side and is doing this, again, wonderfully playful, inventive, um, super interesting kind of like bar snack menu that feels, you know, New York does bar snacks better than any but anywhere else. And this feels like it really takes it up a notch. So that was very, very exciting to be able to go see. Um, and, you know, the restaurant scene there is incredible. Like the, the classical side is is kind of wonderful. But actually what remained a real favorite from from the last trip was was Superiority Burger, um, which was just wildly fun. And, you know, having visited the original location and, and kind of, you know, trying some of the, the, the kind of brilliance that was coming out of this tiny kitchen, seeing it kind of scaled up to something that feels so New York, so exciting, but the the quality of the food and the drink that was coming out of it. I, I was, you know, it, it felt so fresh. There was no kind of real analog to things I could compare. I was trying to describe it to a friend and they're like, is it a burger joint? I was like, not at all, but I don't really know what I would do to describe it. Um, and again, just such confidence around it 
that just felt so, so wonderful to be able to see. So I think that's probably my, yeah, one of my real standouts uh, from a trip. Uh, and you were in Canada and, as well? What One place from Canada, maybe? Oh, um, so bar-wise, it, you definitely have to get to, to kind of Library Bar, which is this beautiful historic bar in the, the kind of Fairmont, which was really exciting for us to be able to see because... Again, we take for granted things that are very, very old in the UK, but, you know, hearing some of the stories that have come back from a bar that's been there for, for 30 years, but is modernized alongside it was brilliant. Um, Mother was also very, very excellent doing kind of focus on kind of careful fermentations and the idea of very kind of alive ingredients as part of it. And kind of Pompite was really beautiful because it was, I suppose, for a country that has such connections to France, it wasn't French Canadian, it was doing something that felt quite French and it was very very beautifully done um, and then there's another favorite city that again it's Copenhagen remains probably one of the cities I visited most in the world and you know it's 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 obviously got such an incredible dining scene and I I'm also you know very aware that not everybody gets to to go eat at Alchemist or, or, or Noma as a as a as a regular trip or anything like that but it's you know Aside from that, there's some incredible eating and drinking going on in that city. And, you know, I think uh, being able to visit Poppel um, yeah. last time I was in and being very excited. Tony is a, a, like incredible chef watching him from from his Noma days and, and you were in, in Tokyo to to go and do the work that he's doing at the moment at Poppel. I was so excited going in and it even blew away my expectations of it because the meal that we had was, again, it's that balance of kind of fun it's you know it's a much more casual setting than being in either in Inua or in uh Noma but it's got the same care going into it you know the the sourcing of the ingredients it's a very playful setting but the confidence of the dishes was just astounding I was you know it was one of my favorite meals of late I was really really impressed we had some great wine really wonderful company it was just a one of those outstanding experiences that you know it's it's very high on my recommendations list One, one more question. Uh, you mentioned Baxter in, in Sydney. Uh, I've actually been yes. there a few times. Please, how would you describe that? That's a crazy place. Oh, it's, it's a crazy place. I mean, I think the first time I went, I went with, um, you know, friends who used to work there. And I was walking down this alley and going, are you sure we're going the right way? <laughs> um, but it's not that it's a, a speakeasy per se. You just, you know, you descend down these steps in the back of an alley into this beautiful subterranean kind of it feels very kind of classical whiskey bar in a sense because there's lots of dark wood uh low lighting but the the energy of the room is just it's packed bustling all the time um and they really again similar to to kind of dram in london they just celebrate whiskey in a very modern sense you know one of the things that they they pioneered was their house drink was a a, a ryan apple juice but they would press the apple to order and it was done ultra fresh. And, you know, they, they, you know, spurred a lot of kind of movements around the world of looking at like fluffy juices alongside kind of these simple serves, but it was done in such an unpretentious manner. And you'd, you'd see everybody in the bar order one while they were deciding what to have, you know, be it a, a whiskey off the bat bar or a cocktail. So much so that the, the team bought an orchard because they needed to keep up with the apple supply. And I just think it's such a wonderful kind of example of, well, how do you make whiskey accessible to people? 
And, you know, they've really proven that whiskey can be for everyone because they serve so much of this drink that they're, they, they're controlling their own supply of the, the, the ingredient behind it. And, you know, I think it's a really great example about, you know, what Anton and the team do to to really, you know, take a an existing trope, something that, you know, people have experienced in different versions around the world, but just to make it their own. And, you know, the team that work there, the way that they bring their, their kind of personalities into it, you know, they've got some absolutely incredible whiskies in that bar, you know, things that, you know, having lived in Scotland for a long time, you know, you'd be jealous to find them, let alone think that you're going to kind of stumble across it on a bar in Sydney. Um, but they serve it in a way that it doesn't, it gives it the, the appropriate gravitas. They're not kind of being flippant about some of these very, very rare, very wonderful products, but they're they're making it accessible to people. Yes, of course, some of them are, are expensive because they are incredibly well sought after, but they're doing it in a manner that, that feels kind of so fun and you don't feel like there's a barrier or there's a pretension around it. And, you know, I think that just stems from, you know, Anton, Toby and the team and all of their care to be able to, to kind of make that feel kind of real and they want to be able to share it with people and they want you know their city to be excited by whiskey as much as they are and you know you really feel that when you go into the bar wow that's a good description of the place yeah hey one one last question um if you would be able to skip work for a few days uh pack your bags and uh go anywhere in the world uh to um to any restaurant or bar in the world or both, where where would you go? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, I think it's going to remain. Uh, it's got. It's going to be Kyoto, um, and the reason is it's like every time an opportunity to go back to Japan comes up, it's it, it remains. You know, one of my most excited kind of feelings and. The, the the kind of reason is I think there's even having visited several times it feels like I discover something new each time I go back and you know the 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 quality of the ingredients I did a a trip to be able to to kind of go down to Kyushu and experience shochu and some of the ingredients behind it just it it felt like a whole new sense of discovery and I I kind of still feel feel very excited to do that having visited uh, early last year for, for the Noma pop-up there and, you know, talking with the team and hearing about the the explorations they did and they have the beautiful book that, that kind of highlights some of those journeys. It really it kind of echoed how excited I felt when I was first, you know, as a young bartender, I was just diving into, you know, the bars and, you know, some of the restaurants that were there. But as I've kind of grown older, I've started to appreciate some of the other elements of the craft that I maybe might not have noticed. Um And, you know, being able to visit and I was very thankful to be, you know, introduced by, um, you know, somebody who works on the, the sake and, and shochu board and, and really kind of understands the kind of culinary scene there. Be given a couple of recommendations around some of the restaurants that I did manage to get to. So there's a few different spots that for different techniques, for different ingredients, um, I'm I'm very, very excited to kind of make it back to. So Yeah, if I could jump on a plane, I'm going to take a couple of days off. It's it's going to be a trip to Japan. Uh, hey, uh, Ryan Chetty, uh, Chetty, uh, Ryan Chetty Awardana, uh, Mr. Lion, thank you so much. Uh, great talking to you about cocktails around the world and uh, the influence that you had in the whole trade for for uh, so many years. Thank you and good luck with all your uh, endeavors. Thank you so much. Real pleasure to chat.
Thank you for listening to the Walla Mouth podcast with cocktail bartender Ryan Chetiawardana in London. If you liked our podcast, please give it a star rating on the platform you're using now and let us know which chefs you'd like us to invite to the show. You'll find all the recommendations mentioned in this episode and more in the Walla Mouth app, available in your app store, or visit our website at wallamouth.app. I'm Kenneth Nars. Until next week, when we meet Chef Daniel Calvert from Restaurant Cezanne in Tokyo.